Hello everyone, my name is Fritz Streif and you're listening to Branch 251. This episode is for those of you who have been wondering what exactly has been going on in the courtroom the past two weeks. Two civil parties testified as witnesses, as well as a man many consider a leading figure in the Syrian opposition. Riyad Saif, a man who made his career first in business, then in Syrian politics when he was voted into parliament. He's been a fixture on the political scene for decades and was one of the earliest and most vocal opponents of Bashar al-Assad. Long before Bashar came to power, though, he had already been trying to bring about change in a regime that he considered to be corrupt and bad at governing. When Bashar al-Assad succeeded his father in 2000, Riyad Saif saw a chance, a small window of opportunity for change. Maybe, he thought, with generational change would come political change. And in a way, it did. Despite warnings from multiple regime figures that he should tread lightly, Mr. Saif continued ruffling feathers. He criticized and challenged the regime, organizing illegal lectures and calling out shady deals that reeked of nepotism. His resistance grew into a movement which today is referred to as the Damascus Spring. It cost him dearly. Between 2000 and 2010, Mr. Saif spent eight years in prison. In 2011, when the uprising in Syria started, he attended demonstrations and tried to unite the opposition by attempting to create coalitions and even a new political party. His efforts to break Assad's hold on Syria failed. All the while, members and supporters of the regime continued warning him, intimidating him, arresting him, and, according to Mr. Saif, physically attacking him. In June 2012, Riyad Saif left Syria for Germany. And in exile, his opposition continued. This is also where his connection to Koblenz comes into play. That same year, he heard via an old friend of his son-in-law that a former high-ranking member of the intelligence service, who claimed he had defected, had fled to Jordan and needed help. The Syrian opposition could potentially benefit from having a defector spill the beans on his bosses and on their practices. So Mr. Saif decided to help this man come to Germany. He gave all the information he had about the man to the German authorities, vouched for him, and so Anwar R. was offered refugee status in Germany. Now, one interesting thing about his story as it relates to Koblenz is this. Both the prosecution and Anwar R. thought Mr. Safe's testimony could potentially help their case. Let's break that down a little bit. For that, I called our court reporter Hannah El-Hitami. Hannah, help me understand why Anwar R. wanted to hear Mr. Saif as a witness. So uh, Anwar R. in May gave a written statement um, where he talked about many things, uh, his life, and also he gave a list uh, of potential um, witnesses that he personally suggests that he personally would like to hear because he uh, believes that they would speak in his favor. Riyad Saif is one of the most prominent opposition figures of Syria, and uh, Riyad Saif was on that list, so Anwar R was obviously hoping that if this guy spoke in his favor, then it would be clear that he had really defected and that he had honestly joined the opposition. Um, and that is something that a lot of people have questioned. Right. And why would the prosecution want him? I guess for the prosecution, Riyad Saif is just a very important uh, witness because he is the one who helped bring Anwar R to Germany. He is the one who kind of vouched for him, who used his connections to the German Foreign Office uh, to help Anwar R and his family get asylum in Germany. 
via a special humanitarian program for accommodation of refugees. The prosecution just needed to know <laughs> what was the connection between Riyad Saif and Anwar R. Why would he uh, help him come to Germany? And what else did he know about him? So on day 26 and 27 of the trial, both the defense and the prosecution got to question him as a witness. Anwar R., hoping that his connection to Riyad Saif would speak in his favor. And the prosecution wanted to get as much information as possible about Anwar R.'s resettlement in Germany. Okay, so now that we understand a little bit better the context in which Riyad Saif testified, Hannah, can you tell us how his testimony went? So um, it was interesting that one of the first sentences that Riyad Saif said was that he didn't know Anwar R. He had never heard of him before he came to Berlin and that he basically had nothing to do with him, uh, which was interesting because he helped this man come to Germany. So everyone was expecting that there must have been some kind of a relationship. He then continued to describe that his son-in-law had a close friend and that close friend had told him about Anwar R who had already defected and was living in Jordan at the time and that this friend of his son-in-law had asked him to help this guy come to Germany because he was allegedly being threatened by the Syrian regime in Jordan and he was fearing for his life. And yeah, because um, Riyad Saif trusted his son-in-law and that close friend of his and because he was interested in uh, helping a, a high-ranking regime member de defect, he forwarded Anwar R's information to the Foreign Office and uh, recommended him for, uh, for a special humanitarian asylum. Riyad Saif also said that he didn't double-check uh, Anwar R's background, but that if he had known all these negative things about him back then, he would never have, have helped him. He would never have supported him, but he didn't know anything about him back then. Wait, so Mr. Saif said he wouldn't have helped Anwar R had he known how bad he was, even though Anwar R's high rank, which Mr. Saif was aware of, meant that Anwar R almost certainly participated in or oversaw torture in one form or another. Plus, he wasn't just aware. Anwar R's high rank was, in fact, one of the main reasons he volunteered to help him get to Germany. How did that come across to you during the testimony? I thought it was kind of weird that he said that he wouldn't have helped him if he had known anything negative about him. Because, you know, you have to remember, Riyad Saif himself was imprisoned in Syria for almost seven years. Even when he was out of prison, he was summoned to uh, the Secret Service branches numerous times. He also mentioned that he had been to Al Khatib branch numerous times, where he was interrogated, he was detained for a few hours, he was uh, threatened. He uh, said in court that there is no Secret Service branch in Syria where there is no torture, and if anyone said that was the case, they were lying. So, considering this, um, if he, was, if he heard about a high-ranking ex-Secret uh, Service officer, head of interrogations, he must have known that this guy did not have a clean slate. And the prosecution actually asked him about that, and they quoted something that Riyad Saif said during his police interrogation, um, where he said that he cannot imagine that Anwar R was nice during his interrogations, because as a Sunni, 
in such a high position, he was always under observation by his Alawi colleagues, and he uh, wouldn't have been able to, he wouldn't have dared to be friendlier to prisoners and offer them tea or biscuits or, or whatever Anwar Ar had said in his statement. Okay, interesting. Riyad Saif was actually referring to something here that is considered common knowledge among Syrians and those who know Syria. As Anwar Ar belonged to a different school of Islam than most of his colleagues and the ruling elite, he would have been under extra pressure to prove himself, basically. According to Mr. Safe's logic, Anwar Ar probably wouldn't have felt safe or secure enough in his position to show the kind of mercy that he claimed he did in his personal statement. Hannah, did he say more about why he did vouch for him then? He gave several reasons, one being that yeah, he trusted his son-in-law and wanted to help him. Uh, the second reason was that he wanted to uh, encourage high-ranking regime officers to defect, so he wanted to support this one. And the main reason, I think, uh, that he mentioned was that he wanted to get information from Anwar R. With Anwar R. being such a high-ranking officer in the Secret Service, Riyad Saif was really hoping for uh, information from him, that he would share all the information that he had gathered during his work for the Secret Service. And did he deliver on that information? Well, uh, Riyad Saif was actually disappointed. He said that Anwar Ar came to visit him one time after arriving in Berlin. He came to visit him at home with his wife and his children. And uh, Riyad Saif tried to ask him questions and get some information from him. But he said that Anwar Ar did not say a single word. The defense asked him whether there had been a deal between him and Anwar Ar that he would help him come to Germany in exchange for information. But Riyad Saif said, no, there was no deal. He was expecting Anwar Ar to give information, you know, in favor of the revolution. Uh, but he did not make a deal. It was not like a prerequisite for, for supporting him. And in your estimation, and I know this might be a bit of a speculative question, but did either the prosecution or the defense get from Mr. Saif what they hoped they would? Um... Well, the defense definitely did not get what they wanted. I mean, it was clear that Anwar R was hoping that Riyad Saif would speak in his favor and that he would say that uh, that he would confirm his sympathy with the revolution and that he had been in touch with the opposition. But none of that happened. And uh, Riyad Saif actually said that Anwar R had not been in touch with the opposition before he left Syria. Riyad Saif is not the only person who testified in Koblenz recently. A week before him, torture survivor Wasim Mugdad took the witness stand. He actually became involved in the trial after bumping into someone working on the case while he was just barbecuing in a park in Berlin. So he learned about the Koblenz trial and since he's a victim of the alleged crimes, he became a civil party. Civil parties, or joint plaintiffs, joined the prosecution in the case against Anwar R and Iyad A and can participate in the proceedings. For example, his lawyers can ask questions to the witnesses. And this was a special day for him because he appeared as a witness himself. Mukhtad had been arrested in Syria during the uprising when he was looking to join a protest. He was arrested, kicked, and beaten before being taken to Branch 251, or as many survivors call it, hell on Al-Khatib Street. Hannah, what can you tell us about Wasim Mukhtad's testimony? So Wasim Mukhtad uh, was the second of the joint plaintiffs to testify. 
He spent five days in Al Khatib branch in 2011 after having been arrested while out on the streets looking for a demonstration to join. And he gave the usual descriptions of torture, mainly the beating on the soles of the feet during interrogation. He said that he had suffered from a broken rib during his arrest and he had to endure that during his whole stay. He didn't get, get any medical, um, he didn't receive any medical care for his broken rib. So that was very painful for him. He also mentioned that during the interrogations, he hid his hands underneath his body, first of all, to, to protect his rib, but also because he's a very successful musician. He plays the oud, uh, an Arabic instrument, and he wanted to protect his hands from being broken. He said he didn't care if, you know, someone beat his feet or legs or whatever, as long as he was still going to be able to use his hands afterwards. One important thing that he said was that all his three interrogations were conducted by the same person and that he would be able to recognize that person's voice. But since Anwar R is not willing to give a voice sample, he's not going to be able to recognize him by his voice in the courtroom. However, uh, Anwar R in his own statement mentioned one interrogation that he conducted with uh, Wasim Muqtad. So if one of the interrogations actually happened, then that could mean that the other two also happened under the lead of Anwar R. And according to Wasim Muqtad, torture was used during the interrogations. So that would prove that uh, Anwar R's interrogations were not peaceful and without violence. The day after Mukta testified, we had another civil party appear as a witness, right? Yes, that was the third joint plaintiff, uh, Hussein Greer. Uh, he was a blogger. He was arrested for his political blogging that he did before and in 2011. He was arrested in October 2011 and he stayed in Al Khatib branch for 10 to 15 days until he was transferred to another branch and later to prison. His statement was also in line with all the statements by the victims that we heard until now. So there was nothing really different. He also said that he would recognize the voice of the interrogator. I think one interesting point was he was the first one who mentioned talking to other prisoners about their experiences of sexual harassment and sexual assault in prison. All the other witnesses had said that this is something people don't talk about. But... Um, This witness said that when he was in Adra prison, he met people who had been in different secret service branches and many of them shared um, their stories of, of rape and sexual harassment. But he couldn't say in which branches exactly because those were people that he met in prison later. So now we have at least two people who said they would be able to identify Anwar R by his voice. However, Anwar R has not spoken a word since his trial started only communicating through his lawyers and through written statements. You might be wondering if the judge or the prosecution or anyone else could demand a speech sample from Anwar R. And the answer is no. This is because of the principle that in a criminal proceeding, none of the defendants can be forced to say or do anything that might incriminate them. And Anwar R's defense has made this clear multiple times in the courtroom. Hannah, before we let you go, I'd like to ask you a question that goes beyond the last two weeks. Let's take a step back and look at the entirety of the Koblenz trial so far. It started a little over four months ago. So far, there have been 27 court sessions and you've seen 26 of them. So in a way, you are sort of our expert witness here. Tell us about what you expected of this trial at the beginning and how you look back at those expectations now. 
when I first read about this trial and heard about universal jurisdiction, I expected it to be a very international type of trial. But I have to say that in this regard, I've been a little bit disappointed. I think that the trial is much more like local than I would have expected. And also, yes, it's based on international law in the form of universal jurisdiction, but the code of criminal proceedings is the German one. And I had the feeling that this has a very big influence on how this whole trial is conducted. It has an influence on the way that witnesses, for example, are protected. And I think that the rules for witness protection should be different in an international proceeding than in a normal, everyday uh, criminal case that happens in court in Germany, for example. And um, I have to say that that there are some things that would work better in a in more international trial. Um, and yeah, well, the media attention has also been quite disappointing. I feel like it's a historically important trial and it's unique, or it's at least the first of its kind. So it's a bit surprising that it's not being followed a lot more. Like often I'm the only journalist in the audience. Sometimes there is two or three. But I think it's a pity because there's probably so much we could learn from this trial and there will probably be so much more universal jurisdiction cases in the future that, it, yeah, it would be important to really monitor and record and document this trial. Thanks so much for your time, Hannah. Thank you. Hannah recently published a piece about the Riyadh Safe testimony. It's a great article. You can go check it out. We've posted a link in the show notes. Personally, I was also very curious about Mr. Safe's testimony, ever since I learned that such an important member of the opposition had vouched for Anwar R, and that Anwar R himself asked the court that Mr. Safe should appear as a witness. Now, after his testimony, I have to say it was kind of disappointing, but I'm not surprised. Mr. Safe did not say anything unexpected. He helped a relatively high-ranking regime official, hoped for information that would be valuable to the opposition, and he made a bet that helping a defected colonel of the security services would further weaken the regime. Listening to Mr. Safe, those expectations did not quite materialize, and he now regrets having used his own status to recommend Anwar R for asylum in Germany. I get the feeling he's embarrassed about how things turned out, and that makes sense. I mean, what this all comes down to is that Mr. Safe just testified as a witness about a man that is in the dock for allegations of crimes against humanity, a man he helped get into the country that now prosecutes him based on these allegations. And just one last thought in connection to the last question I discussed with Hannah about her opinion of the trial so far. I think Mr. Safe's testimony once again shows that If we have learned one thing so far during the trial, it is that things were not black and white, as they never are. There are so many shades of gray when reconstructing complicated and complex facts like these. And that's it for today's episode. But first, we have some sad news to share. Unfortunately, Karam is moving on to other responsibilities and projects and will no longer be able to contribute to the podcast. His contribution to this first phase of the podcast was absolutely invaluable. And we're sorry to see him go and wish him all the best for his future endeavors. Thank you, Karam. And thank you all for listening to today's episode. We'll see you next time on Branch 251.
French 251 is created, produced, and hosted by Fritz Struijf. Production feedback by Maarten van Doornmalen. Production assistance by me, Pauline Peek. Hanna Elhitami is our court reporter. This podcast is entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy listening and want to help us out, the best way to do so is by becoming a patron of the show via Patreon. Every donation, no matter how small, helps us in keeping Branch 251 going. So please, consider becoming a patron today. We'd be so grateful to have your support. There's a link to our Patreon page in the show notes.